The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Galatians 4, 21-31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth, cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who had a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to, to Christ. Christ. Thank you again, Marini. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, especially the boys and Girl Scouts and Scoutmasters and leaders. We're really glad to have you here and, and also families uh, for those who who uh, are not part of Christ Prez among you. Uh, we're, we're glad you're here for this Scout Sunday. And uh, uh, what we've been doing here at, at Christ Prez Church is we've been going through a series uh, in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And uh, I'll start with uh, a quote from one of the people that I've learned from a lot from over the years. He's uh, he was a Presbyterian minister and then founded uh, an organization called Labrie. Uh, and uh, his name is Francis Schaefer, and he wrote a book called Escape from Reason, and in Escape from Reason, he talked about uh, the idea of antithesis, and antithesis means this. If something is true, then the opposite is false. If something is true, then the opposite is false, and uh, what we've got here in Paul's letter to the Galatians is uh, an antithesis scenario. Uh, Paul has come in uh, as the founding pastor previously of the church at Galatia, and he has told them something that is true. What is true is this, the God of the universe loves you, wants to adopt you into his family, and has an inheritance that he wants to share with you forever, and the pressure is entirely off of you to make it happen or to hold on to it once it's yours. It's a work that God does from, the, from beginning to the very end for the sole reason that he loves you and he wants you to be his. Uh, you could call it Jesus plus nothing. That's how you get into God's favor. Another way of putting it is that God helps those, this is the Christian gospel, God helps those who can't 
help themselves. And what's come into the Church of Galatia is a group of teachers who are, who are promoting the antithesis of what Paul had brought to them and is trying to bring them back to here. Because what the false teachers are teaching in this church is that God helps those who do help themselves. That, oh yes, you know, Jesus died for your sins and he came to, you know, give you new life and all of that. But there's also something you have to contribute to the equation in order for God to really accept you. You also have to exert your effort and keep the law of Moses. And that's basically, um, you know, how Jewish community uh, in the New Testament era talked about the whole Old Testament and especially the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And so what these new teachers are bringing into the church is a Jesus plus effort message that says, trust Jesus and measure up. Why were they falling for it? Well, we we got a hint last week as to why they were falling for for a message that actually doesn't sound as attractive at first blush, right? Because, I mean, if you're going to be given for something for free, and and somebody says, well, you can have the same thing for free and you've got to work for it, I mean, which which are you going to choose generally? But but what was happening, and we, we got a hint of this last week, is that the false teachers were winning them over with flattery. Maybe it went something like this. Here's the law of God. You can keep it. You're good enough. You're smart enough. You're strong enough. You're special enough. We believe in you. You believe in you too. And we're all in this together. Sounds great. The only problem is it doesn't work. You know, if you watch the Grammys, you may remember the moment where uh, a, a young and, and very well-intended producer who has produced uh, and recorded records with his uh, teenage sister, and they swept uh, uh, a lot of categories. Uh, this was their first Grammys, and they produced their music in uh, one of their bedrooms at home, brother and sister. And on this particular, with this particular Grammy, the brother gave the speech, and, and, and he got a little bit carried away, and I think very well intended, but he said, kids at home who are recording music in your bedrooms, you keep at it, you work hard, and you will have one of these too one day. Is that true, Nashville musicians? <laughs> Is that true, Juilliard graduates and... and um, Conservatory graduates and Berkeley School of Music graduates, is that true? It might be like saying to a scrawny, slow, four foot eight inch teenager, if you work hard enough, you could be the next Kobe Bryant. You will dominate the NBA. See, the truth here is that on the one hand, and this is what makes it tricky, the law of God is a good thing. It's a good thing, though, for these reasons. It shows you your need for Christ because you can never measure up to what it's asking of you. And after you have Christ, it also becomes an inspiring pathway from which to live well 
and to flourish. It's impossible, though, as a salvation system, work hard and make yourself right with God. The problem here that Paul's addressing is not that they are wanting to obey the law of God. The problem is that they are relying on their presumed obedience to the law of God to make them right with God. Then he does a little bit of judo on them in verse 21. He says, you who desire to be under law, you who desire to earn something that's already been given to you for free? Do you not even listen to the law? And then he goes on to uh, highlight a famous account from the book of Genesis uh, with whom his listeners would have been very familiar, which I'll get to in a minute. But, but there are three headings that we're going to cover today to unpack this teaching from Paul. First, what people cannot do then what God can do, and then finally what Jesus has done. So let, let's start with what people cannot do. Here's what people cannot do. Control things. People cannot control things, especially the trajectory of their own lives. See, what they're operating off of here is a vision for a future that God has promised. The good life but by your own effort. And so, think about it this way. We're all created in the image of God. We all know intrinsically that we're made for more than what we experience. Even those of us who are, I don't know, top of the org chart, happy relational lives, etc. We, we all still feel this ache. That there's got to be something more We're being held back somehow. There's always this tension where our dreams are frustrated by the way that the world works right now. Genesis chapter 3 calls it the curse. Relationships have been cursed. Work has been made difficult uh, through the curse. The ground, nature itself, uh, again, is, is under a curse because of the independence that we sought that human, the human race sought from God. And ever since then, started in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, and, and it's happened ever since, and it continues to happen, human beings rally together to see if they can create the world that God promises, but by their own strength and resources, without God. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, uh, it just keeps happening. There are three documents, all of which are called the Humanist Manifesto. It's essentially a vision for life and flourishing without God. There was one written in 1933, one in 1973, and then another one in 2003. And and, and each one was an instance in which uh, world secular humanist uh, scholars, most of them agnostic or atheists, came together. These are academics, these are scientists, these are are business leaders, politicians, etc. They came together uh, with a post-enlightenment optimism about human potential and and essentially said amongst themselves, we invented the the car, we put a man on the moon, we invented penicillin which cures all sorts of diseases that used to routinely take people's lives. And so if we've done this, then, then surely using our reason, using our resources, we will be able to come together and heal the world. We will heal the environment, we will cure cancer, we will, we will heal all social problems, including all the isms, racism, classism, sexism, ageism, anti-Semitism. Those things will, 
will be gone and there will be no more war. No more hostility, this utopian vision of world peace. The vision itself is spot on. The, 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 the desire, the ache, the, the dream for that kind of world is a dream for the world that God created and a dream for the world where God has promised to take his people. And so there's, there's, there's a positive to this. You know, he, he mentions, Paul does, the Jerusalem that is from above. This is a, a precursor to what the Apostle John would write about in Revelation chapter 21. And it's a picture of the future. Where this world that we live in, it's not going to be done away and replaced with some, some other world. It, it's actually going to be renewed and restored. And, and, and what began as a garden in Eden will be this glorious, fully developed, beautiful, problem-free city of God. The holy city. Uh, this is the future. After Christ rises and raises up his people from the dead, uh, it will usher in this new era, which is the everlasting era of the new Jerusalem. It's described in Revelation 21 this way. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things, the difficulty and turmoil and tumult, all of it will be washed away. Everything that the humanist manifestos go after will materialize, but not by human effort. In spite of human effort, in fact. You know, Ecclesiastes says that God's put eternity in our hearts. We can't help but ache for a better world. But the self-reliant method that says we can make all this happen in our own strength, it's only a matter of time that, that, that we realize that trying to make things happen without God is a fool's game. Okay, so back to Abraham and Sarah from the book of Genesis, which is the story that, that Paul unpacks here. Abraham and Sarah are a husband and wife who had built their lives around a promise that God made to them earlier on in their marriage. I will give you children. So many that they will outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. That's my promise. And so, so Abraham and Isaac are, 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 are anticipating a houseful and the first child never comes and then never comes and then never comes. She, she goes through the menopause years. They're, they're both getting older and older and older and, and more and more cynical and more and more bewildered. And so they decide to do Jesus plus. To take matters in their own hands now. To improve on the plan that God had delivered to them that he will give them a son by trying to make it happen themselves. And the way that they did that was that, that Sarah called in her servant or her slave named Hagar and said to Abraham, give me children or I will die. Here's Hagar. That's the way it's going to need to happen. And of course, Abraham, uh, the, the text tells us, Followed through with that plan, and a boy named Ishmael was, was born several months later, and it was a train wreck. You can read about it. But why would Sarah resort to this? Why would she say things like, if I don't have children, my life isn't even worth living? It's because in that culture, a woman's worth was bound up in the number of children she had. And if you were, 
If you were barren or if you were infertile as a woman, you were considered by the community and by society as being cursed uh, like you're a loser. And then there's Hagar, on the other hand, who also has a wound. Her wound is this. Maybe she can have children, but, but, but she's not loved. She's not loved. Abraham pursues Hagar, not because he finds her beautiful, but because Sarah and Abraham find her useful. I want you for your ovaries, but I don't want you. You Both women are afflicted by circumstances that marked them in the society in which they lived as losers, as women of no worth. And we look back and we think, oh, how culturally regressive is that? How horrible those ancient, uneducated, unenlightened, pre-enlightenment, primitive people groups were. And yet, as right as that objection may be, we are the same. We just have different identity markers. Their identity marker was the nuclear family. Ours consists of other things. What is it that you're willing to sort of seize control of and, 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 and offer an improvement plan on the plan of God? How about this? Replacing formation into the likeness of Jesus Christ and obsessing about loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, replacing that with material success as your foremost vision. Think about the relative energy we spend on getting ourselves and our children the best education, the best career path opportunities. All of that's a great thing. All these are good things, by the way. Remember, an idol, a false god, is, is when we take something good and turn it into something ultimate. So in our culture, that, that's our identity marker. You haven't climbed the org chart. You haven't succeeded. You haven't gotten, you know, your, your song cut. Um, hmm, sorry. Too bad, so sad. And it, and it crushes us when it becomes our true north. Or body image, that's another one in Western culture as well, as sexualized as we've become. The New York Times came out with an essay a number of years ago called Celebrity Weight Battles, and, and some of the most well-known, well highly celebrated celebrities um, were revealed as essentially hating themselves for um, gaining five pounds during the holidays. It's crushing. Because body image had somehow, you know, somehow for us replaces union with Christ and the fact that God looks at us favorably and, and, and declares that we're beautiful and that he delights in us. We replace that with, ah, oh, I better lose some weight. And so, you know, just a couple of examples. We overwork and we undereat to control things in our time in ways that their culture would look at and say, oh, that's so pitiful. That's so sad. Yeah, before I turned 50 years old last year, I thought that I was a paragon of fitness. Been an athlete all my life, been running, you know, and, and working out and exercising and playing sports all my life, like 
God had given me a Ferrari for a body, right? Two years ago, long, log on to the Vanderbilt Healthcare portal, portal. I've got one doctor. Log on today. Two years later, I've got five specialists, multidisciplinary specialists. Turns out that God gave me a Ford Escort for a body, and I've hit 100,000 miles, and the rest of my life is maintenance and repair, it appears. We fight, and it doesn't pan out. We fight for mental health, for happy marriages, for thriving children, for vocational fulfillment, for financial freedom. And at some point or another, we realize, oh my goodness, I'm just like the bleeding woman. I've been investing everything in professionals and in, you know, bestsellers and um, my own, you know, ideas about how this can be made better and I'm out of money, I'm out of energy, I'm tired of life, I'm tired of myself, and it's only the hem of Jesus' garment that will heal the bleeding that's happening to me. The summary here is this. When you seek heaven heaven on earth, when you seek the good life from your own strength, it's going to backfire. You know, there's this song that Rich Mullins did. He says, you know, we are frail. We must be awfully small, not as strong as we think we are. I I, I think that's right. You know, Paul's argument here is in the same way that polygamy is always going to destroy a family. Jesus plus effort to make yourself right with God is going to destroy your flourishing and possibly even your soul. So that's what people can't do, control things. Next, what God can do, control things. What we can't do, God does. He can even take our lunacy and turn it into laughter. So Paul quotes Isaiah, the prophet, saying, Rejoice, O barren one. Rejoice, O people such as Sarah, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate woman, children or women like Hagar, abandoned, cast out, belittled, used, and discarded, children of the desolate woman will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So when Abraham turns 100 years old, God visibly fulfills his promise. He's 100 years old, Sarah conceived. And what else would they call their child except Isaac, which means he, laughter? This is funny. <laughs> this, is, this is really funny. You're 100 years old. I'm just a little bit younger than you are, and we're going to have a kid this is funny. But, but, but Hagar, while she is discarded by the culture and while she is discarded by Abraham and Sarah and despised and, and, and persecuted by them, God says to her, name your son Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears you. And God delivers that message to Hagar in a place, the name of which means God sees you. I hear you. 
and I see you. See, this, this, this whole thing, it's an invitation to abandon the mindset that the pressure is on us to make things happen, to dig ourselves out, to, to create the world that we dream of, to, to be the master of our own destinies, destinies, the captains of our own souls. That's, that's what Paul refers to metaphorically as the, son, the mindset of the son of the slave woman. You've got to go pressures off, Galatians. You've got to go Jesus plus nothing for this to work out well. You know, St. Augustine prayed famously, Lord, command what you will and then grant what you command. God commanded the universe to produce countless offspring, countless descendants through an old post-menopausal woman and her dysfunctional husband to ignite his global movement of salvation. How can this be? So let's consider what's happened since Abraham and um, Sarah and Hagar and that whole event. So Walker Percy has this, (laughs) speaking of laughter, he has this funny little story about what pushed him over the edge to become a follower of Christ and a person of the Bible. He said, I am a Christian because the Jews still exist and there are no more Hittites. Here's an excerpt. Where are the Hittites? Why does one find it remarkable that in most world cities today there are Jews but not one single Hittite, even though the Hittites had a great flourishing civilization while the Jews nearby were a weak and obscure people. When one meets a Jew in New York or New Orleans or Paris or Melbourne, it is remarkable that no one considers the event remarkable. What are they doing here? But it is even more remarkable to wonder if there are Jews here, why are there not Hittites here? Where are the Hittites? Show me one Hittite in New York city. So our, our apartment building in New York, we were, we were in the significant minority as Gentiles, a full Jewish building. And Tim and Susie Knapp lived a couple of blocks away from us. They were here in the early service. They've since moved to Nashville as well. Same, same story. Massive temples all over the place, but not, not a single sign of Hittite culture in one of the most global cities in the world, New York City. Not a one. Every nation, tribe, and tongue is there. Didn't meet a single Hittite the five years that we were there. This is actually the recurring story of history. Massive empires, like Pharaoh's Egypt, like Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, like Tiglath-Pileser's Assyria, like Caesar and Nero's Rome, massive insurmountable, undefeatable empires gone, one after the other, desolate, obscure. Meanwhile, that tiny little tribe called the children of Abraham, which consists of 
Ethnic Jews on the one hand from one perspective and those who share the faith of Abraham in Jesus Christ on the other, very fertile. Look around. I mean, the room that you're in is filled with some of those stars and some of those grains of sand that were promised to Abraham and Sarah. There was an earlier service and a couple more services in locations around town and then a bunch of other churches and then a bunch of other churches around the country, a bunch of other churches around the world. Stars and grains of sand. You know, Christ's Press story, you know, there's some of you who've been here long enough to this church where you remember days when you've asked the question, are we going to survive this? Are we going to make it through this season? And it tends to happen to every church eventually. You know, in just a few years, we, we've, we've gone from one service, one location, to three service, five locations, and then a year from now, four locations and, and six services, all under the leadership, unless we think we're boasting, all under the leadership of an often anxious and depressed pastor who was thinking about leaving the ministry three months before he came here. God chooses the weak things. What does this mean for your story? It means this. Disappointment doesn't define you. Setback doesn't define you. God is a better author of your story than you are because God loves you more than you love you. God sees things that you don't see. God sees things that I don't see. You know, Johnny Erickson Tata is a great inspiration to our community, especially, you know, the, 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 the energy that we have, you know, to be in community with people with disabilities and special needs as a church. You know, Johnny is, is, is an icon in that, in that space, and she's 70 years old and been in a wheelchair for 53 of those years. And Johnny said uh, just a few years ago, sometimes God allows what he hates in the short run to accomplish what he loves in the long run. He allows what he hates in the short run to accomplish what he loves in the long run. And this brings us lastly to what Jesus has done you know, all these things that happened involuntarily to Abraham, to Sarah, to Hagar, to Ishmael, I guess Isaac had it okay until for a moment there he thought his father was going to stab a dagger through his heart and, and then God delivered him and Abraham from that tragic possibility. All these things Jesus took on, including the dagger to the heart, <laughs> voluntarily. Jesus here is presented to us as the true Sarah and Hagar. He's both, he was both desolate and barren, never had a spouse, never had biological children of his own. On the cross, God said no to his prayers. He was cast out into the desert, took on our shame. Why? The Bible says in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? It was, it was the stars and the grains of sand. It was you and me. It was people like you and me. That was the joy that he was looking forward to having for himself. And he was willing to endure the shame of desolation and barrenness for that purpose. Jesus is also the true Isaac, whose name means, remember, his name means laughter. Or he laughs. He brings joy. He's the son of the father's love who lost the father's face so that we 
would never be forsaken by the Father. We are the sons and daughters of his love through Christ. We bring him joy. But, but he's not only the true Isaac, he's also the true Ishmael, whose name means, again, beloved of God. God tends to Hagar, the banished one, in the desert, in the same way that he tends to us in our metaphorical wilderness experiences. You know, again, the place where he meets her and speaks to her is called Bir Lachai Roy, which means the Lord sees me. You're never invisible to the Lord. You're never of no account. You're never not beloved in the sight of the Lord. He actually favors the weak. He actually gives special attention to those who get no attention and who are cast off and used for their ovaries or something else and then discarded. Because Jesus is also the true Abraham, the father, not of those who measure up, not of those who presume to live their lives middle class in spirit. Well, I need Jesus to get me over the hump, but I've also got to measure up. No, he's not the father of those with that mindset. He's the father of those who are poor in spirit. The father of those who are frail and awfully small and not as strong as they'd like to think they are. There are no Hittites. The children of Abraham, currently 2.7 billion of them alive. To date, over 100 billion of them And it all started with a hundred-year-old man and his cynical post-menopausal wife who had received a promise that could not have been fulfilled except that God can control things in ways that we can't. So rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Thanks be to God. As uh, Pastor David comes forward to serve us communion, and as the other servers head to your tables in the balcony and down here and the kids come in, I want to invite all of us to stand, please. And we're going to um, declare the purpose of this table we're about to approach at the Lord's invitation together. Uh, I'll ask a question. What right do we have to dine at the table of Jesus? As children of God through faith in Jesus, we have every right to dine at his table. What do we mean by this? We mean that Jesus came not for the strong but for the weak, not for the righteous but for sinners, not for the self-sufficient but for those who know they need rescue, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares to all who are weak and frail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table. For he is the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.